Welcome to Sounds Amazing from Plymouth Sound Marine Park, your guide to everything happening in, on, under and around Plymouth Sound. Funded by the UK Government as part of the Community Renewal Fund. Presented by Elaine Hayes. Hello and welcome to the Plymouth Sound National Marine Park. In this podcast, I'm going to be talking to some fantastic people who live and work in and around Plymouth, who have views on what a National Marine Park should be and how we can take this forward. And today I'm very lucky because I've got Paul Naylor with me, who is a well-known marine biologist and underwater photographer. And Paul, I've used many, many of your pictures over the years in, in different things. Tell our audience a little bit about you. Thanks, Elaine. Well, I've always been passionate about the sea, about marine life from when I was a teenager, really. Plymouth was where I didn't first fall in love with the sea, but it reinforced my love for the sea when I first came here when I was 18 and enjoy watching marine animals do their things and portraying them and then hopefully sharing that with people so they can understand just what amazing creatures we have living right on our doorstep. So have you always been a diver or was that an early passion or did that come later? I started snorkelling when I was a teenager and then took up diving as soon as possible. I still dive a lot but I'd still snorkel a lot and if there's anything that makes me feel sort of young it is snorkelling because it's just what I started doing so I just love doing it. And Um, we're very lucky because the waters of the sound can often be absolutely crystal clear so you can see all the way to the bottom. Absolutely. It was in Norfolk where I first started snorkelling and I was excited about that but even though I mean can be very clear there but you know in the sandy lagoons where I was snorkelling it was relatively murky and so when I came to Plymouth and saw the clear water I just thought all my birthdays and Christmases put together it was just amazing. You said you arrived in Plymouth when you were 18 so tell us a little bit about where you were born and brought up. I was born and brought up in Cambridge and we used to go to Norfolk for our holidays and then I came out of the marine biology passion was going down and taking up what would now be called a gap year job at the MBA the Marine Biological Association on the Ho and for a year before I went off to uni. What's your earliest memory of your contact with the sea then? What do you think it was that sort of turned you towards the sea? Because Cambridge is a little bit inland, isn't it? I mean, it's fabulous because it's got lots of fresh water around it, but it's not actually directly on the coast. No, it was going up to Norfolk and it was... I love being in the sea anyway and just swimming and the sort of feeling of being in seawater. But then when I got my first mask and snorkel when I was a young teenager and put my head underwater and started seeing animals doing their things, shore crabs running about and digging up worms and fighting with each other. I just thought that was fantastic. So I loved animals anyway. I loved being in seawater. So it just all came together and it was just another world that you could look into. I do think it's amazing as well that I think people don't realise. I mean, obviously we've got the terrestrial habitat and people watch rabbits in fields and foxes and everything else. But I don't think they understand that the underwater world has the same equivalents just swimming around doing their thing, either stalking each other, attacking each other, mating, burrowing, doing whatever it is that they need to do. And I don't think people understand that the underwater world is the same in that way. No, I think, and the number of conversations I have diving, say, in the sound when we're kitting or walking back from where we're diving on the hoe just to the car, something like that. And people sometimes say, what have you been doing? They're very interested and we always stop and tell them. And I think they think we're going to get a bit of wreckage or retrieve something. When you say, no, we're going to watch the marine life. And they say, what sort of marine life? And you tell them about the corals and the fish and what they're doing. They just look totally amazed and in a good way they just think it's brilliant that it's there on their doorstep 
And I think the world that you've inhabited is one where not only do you love the sea, but you actually want to transmit and share that with as many people as possible, you know, through film, through photography. Because as I said in my intro, your photographs are my go-to whenever I need a great image of a particular example, especially from the sound. Yeah, it's lovely to share that just because of the enthusiasm you see from people when you do. And also, the more they know about what the animals do and what they're like, the more they care about the sea and look after it and then tell other people and spread the word. And that's the most important thing, that by loving it and feeling engaged with the sea, they'll want to value it and look after it. I always think one of the best things that we do, because I know you're involved down at Wembury as well, is take kids rock pooling and you listen to a group and all you can hear is kids going, which is a great response in any case, or oh cool and it's that excitement that we generate in our young people when they're really involved in looking at all of the things that just live in a tiny bit of our sea you know it's not a big bit of the ocean it's just a tiny little world and they get to see all the things that are happening there and they are absolutely blown away by it yeah and I mean a lovely example you reminded me of one of my favourite experiences rock pooling with kids was when you know it was in the summer and we were explaining that if they picked up one of the common blennies the shannies or any other fish really to look at in their pot to make sure they put them back in exactly the same position because they could be guarding eggs you know male carefully guarding eggs and then I went away and I came back to this group of kids and they didn't know I was coming back so it wasn't for me but they were all talking very earnestly about exactly where they'd found this fish to put them back in exactly the right spot in case they were guarding eggs and that just made my day that they were already totally engaged with looking after these animals that was brilliant. Yeah, I absolutely love it when the kids get all overexcited and especially when they tell their parents off. I think that's always a good thing when they say, no, you shouldn't do that or no, we're not going to put crabs in the bucket, Daddy, because they'll die because they'll get too hot, you know, or they'll fight. You know, I think that's where we teach not just the children, but their parents and other generations as well. And it all ripples through really nicely. Absolutely. The levels of knowledge is so varied. You know, kids that when they've been on their first rock pool, they'll know more about marine life than a whole load of other people already. And then there are the experts and it's just lovely that however much you know or little you know, there's always stuff you can learn and things you can tell other people. Yeah, I think as people who love the sea, it excites us to share that knowledge and what we know with people. Yeah. So we're setting up Plymouth Sound National Marine Park. What does a national marine park mean for you in terms of having the first one here in Plymouth and also the fact that you have such a passion for the sea? I'm a passionate marine conservationist, so I want the best possible protection and care for the sea, but I appreciate the marine park doesn't add any extra protection, but I think hopefully it will add increased awareness of that protection and the importance of it and opportunities to share all the reasons for protecting marine life so people don't feel oh this is a special area of conservation or whatever because some scientists think it's important but it's like that because wow we've got this living here and that living here and this is special and it's ours and we can share that knowledge with visitors and that sort of thing so tying it all in together with education and knowledge and just the straight bits of facts so let's unpick that bit because i think there are a number of layers that you've talked about so the first thing you're talking about i think is communicating wonder yeah and i really do think that's part of what the national marine park is about i come from a policy and regulation background quite a lot and i think it's really hard because we do fill our world with jargon 
so much so that you can guarantee that you can turn somebody off by talking about special protection areas, special area of conservation, marine conservation zone. By the time you've gone through three lots of acronyms, you've put them in a flat spin and they don't actually understand. So in some ways, I think that the marine park will have a fabulous role in translation of why we want to protect and value our estuaries and our seas, because up to now we've managed to sort of almost exclude them actively by talking about it in language they either don't understand, because why would they want to know about what the law says? What they want to know is the why, not the what. So how do you think the Marine Park can do more in that sense? You know, Where do you think the direction of travel should be? There should be a lot of opportunities to tell people what's there, show them what's there, also explain hopefully just the sheer variety of animals and plants and what those animals and plants do which is a particular passion of mine you know animal behavior but it's not just showing that there's this rare species or that conservation is all about big charismatic species like porpoises and basking sharks are exciting but even showing that animals like limpets and barnacles that people think don't do anything they have amazing lives and can tell us stories and by engaging people with that sort of thing you really show that the whole ecosystem if you like the whole habitat is really important not just sort of one key unusual algae or bird or whatever but the whole community and population is all important yeah it's really important when i worked in the aquarium community we always used to talk about lbjs or little brown jobs so things that don't excite and don't attract people and yet have such a vital role in that ecosystem within the system to do a really important job that actually if they weren't there the whole thing would just collapse and implode on itself so you're an animal behaviorist you're really passionate about that i've read loads of your descriptions give me a couple of examples of really amazing quirky bits of behavior that really interests and excite you? Well, there's one amazing fish called a corkwing wrasse, very common, and probably if you went snorkelling in a lot of places around Plymouth Sound, it'd be the most obvious fish you'd see. I suppose it's quite traditionally fish-shaped. Okay, good. That um, helps. Quite thin from side to side. Okay. And the main thing is it gets very colourful in the summer, or the males get very colourful, and they take on these brilliant blue and red colours. So that's to show off to the ladies? Yes, but ah, there's a tail here because the males build a nest, which people often don't think of. I always like it when men are committed uh, to the nest building as ah, well. Ah, well, you'll love all shallow water fish because <laughs> so many shallow water fish, it's the males that do all the work. Excellent, we like that. And the male corkwing rat builds this nest and you can sit and watch them, pick up bits of seaweed, ram them into a crevice, and you might think it's just all random. But a guy called Jeff Potts, who worked at the MBA in Plymouth in the 70s, he did some amazing work showing how they don't just pick up any old seaweed. They use different bits of seaweed for different parts of the nest. Oh, wow. You know, soft weed for the female to lay her eggs in and hard, crusty seaweed for the outside. And I only found out recently that those hard, crusty bits on the outside, actually, because it's seaweed, continue to grow after they've been put on the nest. So they knit the nest together. So if you wonder why when big waves don't wash these nests in very shallow water away... They, it's because there's a mesh that's holding they, it all together. They knit them together. And then the male builds this nest, invites females in to lay their eggs, looks after them. But the twist is that while about 90% of males are these hard-working nest builders, about 10% are what are called sneakers <laughs> that disguise themselves as females but are actually males and pretend to be females and sneak in after a real female's been and laid her eggs and sneak some of the fertilisations from the uh, house owner. 
It's kind of like cuckoo in reverse almost, isn't it? So they take the eggs away. No, no, they just fertilise and they leave the homeowner to do all the work looking after them. Excellent. So it's even more (laughs) sneaky than taking them away. Oh, that's an amazing story. So if we think about that more and we think about the nest building, are the ladies quite particular about their nests? Is there evidence that experienced males produce very beautiful nests and the younger males are still practising? Or Probably. There... I'm okay. sure there is. I mean, the other fish I'm passionate about is the Tompot Blenny. And oh. why I mention that now is that you see, you know, on a reef, and we can recognise individuals, you get males that are well-established and you get younger wannabe males. Upstarts. Yeah, and you can see that the females lay much more eggs with the established males and they just lay a few with the wannabes to see how they get on. So you see the big established males with a big raft of eggs that the females laid and the young ones with a little patch that they're looking after to prove themselves. I suppose also there's a training element with that as well because in order to succeed, the female wants as many of her eggs as possible to be fertilised and then become young fry. But a young male may not be as experienced at guarding and looking after eggs and so on. So he's almost in training, isn't he? He's got to get his MVQ or his apprenticeship through before he's allowed to graduate into being the big male with all of the eggs and all the responsibility. Yeah, it's all about natural selection and all that's acting, you know, on all these. And it's why with the Blennies, although they have multiple partners both ways, the females visit lots of males, the males host lots of females, it doesn't mean they're not choosy. They're both promiscuous and choosy which makes their social lives incredibly complicated i suppose as well from a natural selection point of view it makes them an incredibly successful species because forgive me but they're like backing lots of horses each of them that's true both sexes are going oh well we'll do a bit over here and a bit over there and with a bit of luck it'll all come together for us not putting all their eggs in one basket literally literally there you go fabulous so as well when we're talking about blennies so do the males actually fight how do they actually compete for a territory they do fight and you see quite a lot of injuries around the mouths particularly at breeding time but also what's finally even more interesting is outside of the breeding season they seem to do a lot of competition which I can only think is establishing a territory for the next season because they'll keep the same territory for several years and they'll stay there over winter but there's so much more to find out. Oh, it's mad, isn't it? You know, yeah. and all of that from lying on top, trying not to get sunburn, obviously, looking down and observing what the fish are up to. Yeah, a lot of the video has to be done diving, but as you say, snorkelling, you can actually see them. The observational stuff is far easier to do when you're not actually all kitted up and trying to remember all the bits and pieces, I yeah. assume. And now it's time for H2O. I didn't know that. William Bly, captain of the ill-fated HMS Bounty, was born in Plymouth in 1754. At the age of 22, he became the sailing master of HMS Resolution, serving under Captain James Cook on his final Pacific voyage. Charles Darwin's voyage on HMS Beagle, which helped confirm his theory of evolution, set sail from Plymouth in December 1831. Sir Francis Chichester was the first person to sail single-handedly around the globe. He set off from Plymouth in August 1966, arriving back in Plymouth 226 days later. You can find out more about Plymouth Sound Marine Park and Plymouth's famous sailors, adventurers and attractions at The Box. Sounds amazing from Plymouth Sound Marine Park. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Get in touch with questions and comments at PlymouthSoundMarinePark.com
So that's communication. So clearly, you know, we need to be able to communicate science brilliantly to people. And you just did. I love the stories of Blennies. And that's really important. Education. So we talk about always, don't we? Enjoy, understand and then act. So talk to me a little bit about your passion for education, because you spend a lot of time teaching, I know. Yeah, I think it's all about sharing Lately, I've done some talks in schools and it's lovely going in and talking to either primary school kids or secondary school kids and just explaining. And again, it's one of my favourite. It's sort of quite old now. He's putting up a load of pictures of animals and habitats taken in Plymouth Sound and saying, where were these taken? Yeah. And quite a few people know, but some are absolutely astonished when you then put a picture up of that hoe and say, just there, you know, just off the hoe. And so that's lovely, is bringing that home. Yeah, bring it to life. And I always think people are very surprised when we talk about corals. Yeah. Because uh, everybody thinks that corals are a warm water, crystal clear, you've got to go to the Red Sea or somewhere to go and see, or Great Barrier Reef to be able to see these amazing species. And yet we have them here in Plymouth. So tell us a little bit about the corals in Plymouth. We do have corals, a type of small hard corals, and we also have soft corals called rather cruelly dead men's fingers because they're sort of I love them when the tentacles are withdrawn they look a bit sort of like decomposing fingers is what they look like but they look lovely and fluffy when the tentacles are feeding but it's not just them it's all sorts of animals that sit on the seabed like corals Mm. and sea anemones and we have beautiful jewel anemones and animals called hydroids and bryozoans and they all love the currents that sweep in through Plymouth Sound what's Mm -hmm. now The shipping lane, the deep valley, if you like, that runs through the sound that was a valley and is now flooded. The tide, as anyone watches, you know, Devil's Point and see the strength of the current there and you see the current sweeping in through there. Well, that brings in all this plankton. So plankton, little tiny bits of algae and little tiny animals. Tiny algae and tiny animals that feed on them. And that's all these tiny little creatures is fantastic food, living soup for all these animals that live on the seabed and just filter what comes through, like the sea anemones, the corals, the sponges. Yep. have wonderful sponges in Plymouth Sound. This plankton is a smorgasbord for all these plankton feeders, like the sponges and sea anemones and so on. And then the sea anemones and sponges and hydroids are great food for some other spectacular creatures, like sea slugs, these very colourful tiny animals a lot of them are tiny and just look so exotic yeah some sea slugs are new to the brands and some aren't but we'll call them sea slugs because that's a lovely description of how they move and how they behave exactly but so colorful you know when when you see pictures of them people say oh i didn't know slugs could look like that but they're amazing and plymouth sound is actually one of the hot spots around the country for these nudibranchs, some divers get very excited about all the different species rightly and some of these sea slugs eat animals like sea anemones and hydroids and a lot of animals won't touch a sea anemone to eat because sea anemones are armed with lots of little stinging cells Mm. like static jellyfish and they use those stinging cells that shoot off miniature harpoons they won't harm us but they're used for catching prey and also stopping anything eat them yes but sea slugs don't mind they just munch away some of them eat them and you think, why aren't they put off? Well, not only do they not mind eating these stinging cells, they actually pass the stinging cells through their digestive system and out into these little frills on their backs where they sit and act in the sea slug's defence. Wow. So if something like a fish comes and tries and eat the sea slug, it gets stung by the so second-hand enemy cells. So, so it's, it's recycling. Har- so it's harvesting weapons, in yeah. effect. Isn't that amazing? And so that, it doesn't have the mechanism to do it for itself, but it knows that it can hijack what the sea anemone it, has. It's evolved, yeah. Natural it's selection. Very clever. And one of the ways thing. I like to explain 
bit to kids say imagine if you could don't do it but imagine if you could eat wasps and if you did try and eat a wasp you'd get stung in the mouth yes but imagine if you did and you didn't set off the sting but ended up with a sting in your skin and someone tried to come and grab you they'd get stung by the wasp from your skin and that's exactly what the sea slugs are doing I think what people forget, because we have such busy lives and the world is such a busy place, that nature has just quietly gone and done all of this without us doing anything. It just happened. Yeah, and how did that... I mean, it just amazes me as a biologist. How did that evolve? Because evolution has to work in that every little step has to be better than the last one. Yeah, I know. That's why we haven't got wings. My son used to say, why haven't we evolved wings? And it's because (laughs) a little tiny bump that turned into a wing would have to be better than nothing. And so it hasn't happened. But so how did that evolve in sea slugs and it's evolved at least twice separately one of the things i love as well and many people know the story because of course we've all watched finding nemo probably a million times over is that interdependency as well between species where one species helps protect another so there's one way of getting protection is to as you say with the sea slugs eat your protection and add it to your own armory but the other way is to sit in amongst that as the clownfish do in an anemone and then rely on the anemone to look after you which i really love is this whole idea that animals have evolved ways of collaborating just as humans do there's a lovely common in Plymouth sound a hermit crab called an anemone hermit crab and it carries around the cloak anemone very aptly named because the anemone forms a cloak around it and they unlike some other anemone hermit crab partnerships they hardly ever live apart these two they almost always live together and the hermit crabs normally have to change shell if they get bigger but the cloak anemone actually produces a sort of hard porch on the front of the hermit crab's snail shell it lives in so it doesn't have to change shell wow but of course that's benefit to the sea anemone because it doesn't get abandoned by its chauffeur but also so, it's got somebody driving it around taking it to all the new food patches and lots of interesting it places yeah. yes it gets an exciting uh, life with its own chauffeur absolutely and people have even seen hermit crabs deliberately feeding their anemone because they want to keep the anemone happy because the anemone provide with all its stinging cells great protection fabulous great partnership We've talked about animals protecting, we've talked a little bit about protecting the National Marine Park and we've talked about how we need to educate and inspire people. And I think sometimes we spend so much time teaching children the basics of biology that we forget to teach them the things that inspire. And I think whenever you take people down on a beach, that really helps. If we've then converted all these wonderful people to go, yeah, the marine environment, looking after sea, that's the best thing we can do. How do we persuade them to act? How do we turn them into those passionate advocates like you and me because one day you and I will be sat in a bath chair going I remember when well hopefully we will anyway but we need the next generation to be coming up going this is how we should work and we've got a lot of pressures on our marine environment which we'll talk about in a minute as well I think but how do we convert them into actually doing I think a lot of it just comes naturally and it's to show how you can act locally yes not just nationally and we can all play a part whether it's helping support voluntary conservation areas, where there's nothing taken, whether it's cleaning beaches, taking away litter, whether it's reducing our footprint, whether it's supporting making sure we only, if we have to buy fish, make sure it's sustainable, all sorts of things. Yeah, I think it's really important as well because I think sometimes when you watch the news, the scale of the problem is so big and you feel so small yeah. in that, that to be able to say, well, here in Plymouth, what we're doing is we're wrapping our arms around our sound because we want to love it and look after it. And then helping by signposting people to getting involved. And that can be through some of our project work, it can be through Wembury, through working with Ocean Conservation Trust. You know, there are loads of organisations out there that you can reach out to. But for me, it's also about the do just one thing. 
as a result of understanding more about the marine environment, perhaps you won't choose a single-use plastic bottle for your drink in the future. Perhaps you could choose a reusable, turning your lights off and doing all of those things because we can talk a little bit about pressures on our beautiful Plymouth Sound. But, of course, one of the biggest ones is coming from climate change. So do you see a difference in the animals that you see under the water now from, say, 20, 30 years ago? I do. You do see newer warm water species. But what I'm going to do as well is turn this question into a plug. Because people often ask me that because I've been diving so long. What are the changes you've seen? And I would say it's so difficult for one person's observations because I tend to look for specific things when I go diving and snorkeling. So am I just looking harder, seeing that? And it's why all these monitoring schemes and observation schemes are so important long term. And Plymouth's been at the forefront of these, you know, the Plymouth records and Plymouth in its role as a hub of marine science really important and and it's not just professional ones it's these as say citizen science ones like sea search brilliant scheme for divers shore search many things that the wildlife trusts marine conservation society do the ocean conservation trust is another way people can get involved so that's the other thing that people can do to get involved is gathering information yes and it's only by doing that that we can see what effects we're having and understand it and drive change and it's so powerful to be able to do that and particularly at a time when in the past and I'm sure there will be again so much pressure on science budgets that citizen science has an ever more important role and it's such a great way to get involved. I think the great thing about it is that you don't have to be an expert with a very straightforward training session you will suddenly know enough to be able to do it I was talking to a colleague the other day and she'd had a really rubbish day and she turned around and said oh well I did what I always do and I said oh what's that and she said I went to the sea and I think it's so important for us as people that we take time out and actually a bit of mindfulness focusing on one thing rather than all the other problems and challenges in life and going down to a beach and actually going looking for something and counting or monitoring or answering the question of how many or what did you see is such a mindful exercise that all of the rest of your day can just slide away into well that isn't as important because I'm focused on doing this and these data sets are brilliant I mean I can remember starting out looking at something called marine recorder which I'm sure you're very familiar with and understanding the difference in terms of actual data points from our land-based recording because everybody records on land but actually in the sea recording it there's far less data there's far less information and we struggle sometimes to be able to understand what we need to do because there isn't enough information and the more information we have the more power we have to be able to make really good decisions and I think that's something that I'm really keen to promote through the marine park is actually that the scientists yes we really want absolutely outstanding scientists like we have at the MBA, marine laboratories and the university, fabulous people with huge brains that I can't begin to understand doing the work that they do to help us. But everybody can get involved. It's not something that excludes anybody. We can all understand. And actually, one of my real pressure points, which I'm sure you don't struggle with as much, it's that people flash pictures of things under my nose and go, what's that? Oh, yeah, they do. (laughs) But you probably have so many more years of experience of knowing. And I feel really let down when I can't tell them what it is. And sometimes, as you know, you can get a rock pool and it's been in the sun for a bit. And unfortunately, something has died in it and it's gently decomposing. And somebody takes a photo of it and you really haven't got a clue what it is that they've taken a picture of. And you think, crikey, what am I going to say now? How can I walk through this? And usually I just fess up and say, look, I really don't know what it is. Then we'll go and find it. But... 
I think it's really important that we share all those. And I think also one of the great things now about modern technology is that people can share with us things that they don't know what they are. That's very true. Yeah, there are lots of good online facility. And it also helps, like you're talking about those marine scientists we have in Plymouth. So many of them are very good at communicating with the public and getting them engaged. So they have a vital role in guarding that or looking after all that information that's being collected and then sharing and then answering questions from people and there's a whole load of networks that people can get involved in and get expertise and it's a very exciting time. And I think it's really important as well because we're moving into a situation where, as you say, although one person's observation doesn't tell you that the climate is changed, we know the climate is changing, the scientists tell us that. But also one of my big worries is what new species are arriving and what impact that might have. And one of the great beauties of people taking pictures of things that they see is that if we start to see something new that would worry us coming in, and there are, as you know, numbers of invasive species that we have some concerns about, we'll get some early warning of that by just people taking pictures and posting going, what's this, what's that? And we get to see it and go, oh, hang on a minute, we might not want this particularly. And some of that is because the climate is changing, so we're getting warmer water. So obviously one of the classic examples, and I don't know if you've seen any while you've been diving, is the arrival of tuna back onto the southwest shores. Right, no, I haven't. They are, but they're around and it's yes. wonderful. Because they were historically here. I don't know Very entirely exciting. why they left. I think it, fishing pressure, yeah. I think, largely. They're coming back, which is fabulous. But there will be other species that we perhaps would struggle to cope with. We don't want them coming in and pushing out some of our fabulous native species. But that's a really big challenge, I think, is how we take our world through climate change. And actually, the marine environment is under far more pressure from climate change, actually. Although people at the moment, I think, have been feeling the pressure with the temperatures we've been having over the summer. It is. And the other thing, it's not just the ocean warming slightly, but also this people object to the term ocean acidification, but becoming less alkaline, if you like. But it's sometimes called the evil twin of climate change. Yes. And that could have, and I have heard some biologists say that it's the really big impact that's going to be on the sea. That change in in acidity is actually going to be even more than the temperature change. So presumably, I mean, one of the things we've got in the sea is loads and loads of animals that have shells. Exactly. The acid, so a bit like vinegar, if we move into a more acidic situation, the shell will start to be eroded away? Yeah, I think it's a long way before it actually starts eroding, but I think just the slight change in that will make it more difficult for the animals to lay down their skeleton. They're in this massive arms race against each other and that habitat... It's a doggy dog world. It is, it is. (laughs) And, you know, having to use more effort, lay down your shell, could switch the balance for you as an animal. I'm running the National Marine Park, so this is your opportunity. You're sat looking at me, you know, whites of the eyes stuff. Tell me three things that you would really like me to get on and do now. Have more facility for education. Okay. Or information. Certainly, I think where there is, I know we can't add legislation, or that's the current position, make sure that that is applied. Yep, I think that's really important. There's resource, because there's resource for enforcing environmental protection where it's in place. And obviously Um, there's a body in Plymouth that helps us do that, which goes by the really complicated name of Tamar Estuaries Consultative Forum, or TECF. And their role is to make sure that we deliver on those standards. Yeah, I suppose they're a partner organisation for people like Devon and Seven Ifka do a vital job. So that's the Inshore Fisheries and Conservation Authority. (laughs) But Mm. they are hard up for resources and like a lot of conservation bodies very important that they're funded so yep. that they can enforce the very important fishery legislation 
and um, Plymouth is a passionate advocate of the work of the inshore fisheries and conservation yeah, people. Yeah. So that's really great as well. And just make sure that any new developments are totally sympathetic to conservation and protection of this special environment. There will be economic opportunities that we don't kill the goose that laid the golden egg, which is our fabulous habitat, fabulous place. And there's a lot of facility now for developments that don't damage the environment. That sort of technologies and knowledge is used absolutely to the maximum. Plymouth could become quite a beacon of, hopefully, helping people enjoy the sea without damaging the environment. Paul, thank you very much. You've been amazing. Thank you. You've been listening to Sounds Amazing from Plymouth Sound Marine Park. For more information about the topics covered in this podcast, or to leave questions or feedback, visit PlymouthSoundMarinePark.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at PlymSoundNMP. Sounds Amazing is presented by Elaine Hayes. The series producer is Karen Marshall. Edited by Martin Burgess-Moon, engineered by Mark Stevenson. And the producer was Paul Philpot. A Fresh Air Studios production for Plymouth Sound National Marine Park and Plymouth City Council. With thanks to funding by the UK Government as part of the Community Renewal Fund and the National Lottery. Copyright Plymouth City Council. <laughs>